Go ahead and open up to Genesis 28. Genesis 28. We are um, a little over halfway through the book of Genesis. This is our second series in Genesis in the last several years. Uh, We did chapters 1 through 11, and now we're doing the last uh, two-thirds of the book of Genesis or so. And uh, we, our story has turned to the ark of Jacob. Genesis chapter 28. I'll be looking at some from the whole chapter. Woody's already graciously read part of it for us. I'm going to read to you verses 18 through 22 this morning. Genesis 28, verses 18 through 22. If you have your Bibles open there, why don't you go ahead and stand with me out of reverence for the reading of the words of our God. Moses writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in such a way that as the words on this page are being read, God himself is speaking to us. Beginning of verse 18. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head. He set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and and if he'll give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, our God, I pray that you would indeed this morning open our hearts and minds to receive your word. And I pray that none of us will leave here without being changed. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Almost nine years ago, me, Whitney, and Watsy moved to Gadsden, Alabama. Now, now we've got two more boys since then. been here almost nine years. But before we moved here to serve First Baptist Church here in Gadsden, I served as the pastor at Sunnyside Baptist Church right outside Shepherdsville, Kentucky, right on Knob Creek Road. Now, some of you who appreciate high-minded masterpiece theater sort of television might be familiar with this area from a show called Gun Tucky that was on just a few years ago. Now, only those of you that really like high-minded, classy TV will remember that. Um, I... <laughs> You've got it there right next to your Downton Abbey uh, DVD set there in your homes. You've got Gun Tucky, the complete series. But it was filmed there at the Knob Creek Gun Range, just right down the road from where we served. And uh, it was a beautiful place and a beautiful church. And we loved the people. We lived in the parsonage. It was about 25 miles outside Louisville, Kentucky. But to get there, it's kind of a strange little area. Knob Creek run, Road run, ran right down Knob Creek. And Knob Creek happened to run through just a little valley. And on either side of this valley, uh, you would have mountains in such a way that it, it felt almost like you were in a very rural area, even though you were only 25 miles outside Louisville. In fact, you were in a very rural area. To get there, we would take different routes at different times. There are a few different passes through the mountain to get there. And one of the ones that I like to take, you first went to Fairdale, Kentucky. You may not know about Fairdale, Kentucky, but we love Fairdale, Kentucky because we like to stop at Shack in the Back Barbecue and pick up a little taste of home and carry it over the mountain back to the parsonage to have supper. But nonetheless, we would go there, and on the way there, you go up a road called Mitchell Hill Road. 
And as you get to the top of Mitchell Hill Road, as it winds through the, the pass there heading up Mitchell Hill, I would call it a mountain, but it's a hill there, I guess, in Kentucky. As you go up this hill, as you go up this road, you wind through the kudzu and you wind through the trees and you finally get to the top and there's a graveyard right at the top of the hill there where Knob Creek Road meets Mitchell Hill Road. As you come around the corner, you can look back and you can see 17 miles and beyond all the way to downtown Louisville, Kentucky. It was a beautiful sight. We love to do that. In fact, one of our favorite things to do every year, they uh, have a, an event in downtown Louisville called Thunder Over Louisville that's part of, uh, part of the uh, Derby celebration there in Louisville. And there would be these planes flying down the river, and then at night there are these huge fireworks display. So Whitney and I would ride to the top of the hill and take a beautiful look down 17 miles away as those fireworks sort of pop off in the distance. There, there were things I could see from that hill that I couldn't see otherwise. And if I just dropped you down right in the middle of Knob Creek, the Knob Creek community there in Kentucky, or the Sunnyside community there in Kentucky, you wouldn't imagine that you were just a few miles, just a, a short trek away from a major metropolitan area like Louisville. And yet, and yet you could tell when you crested that hill. You could see things from that hill that you can't see otherwise. You get a perspective from there that you couldn't see otherwise. And today, I want you to climb this hill of the Bible with me. I want to show you some things you can't see otherwise. I, I, uh, fr from this hill we see here of Jacob fleeing his brother, this dream of a, of a ziggurat with the Lord at the top, and angels ascending and descending on this holy staircase here on this seeming temple that he dreams of, we can see truth about what it means for earth and heaven to meet. We can look backwards and we can look forwards from this hill, and we can get a glimpse of what God is doing in history, what God is up to in the life of Jacob. We can get perspective that we can't get otherwise. And indeed, this is perspective we so desperately need. Because there's no dream in the human heart quite like the dream of heaven and earth meeting. We long for that. Now, you may not know that that's what you're longing for, but some of the things you long for are really longings for the Lord to make all things here like they are in heaven. Isn't that exactly how the Lord Jesus taught us to pray? that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven? When we long for peace, when we long for things to be right, when we long for people to get along as they should, when we long for all these things, are we not longing? Are we not longing for heaven and earth to meet? I want to show you three truths this morning from this text of Scripture, looking backwards and looking forwards, about how heaven and earth meet, about how we meet God. I assure you there's no greater thing in this world, there's no greater desire you have in this world than to know God. This morning I'd love to talk to you about how it is that we can meet God, how we can know God. Three truths this morning. Here's the first. The first truth I want you to see is this. We cannot go to God in pride. Uh, we cannot go to God in pride. So much of 
this chapter of Genesis and this section of Genesis that we're moving into where Jacob is leaving his father's house and he's going uh, to the house of Bethuel and he's going to find one of the daughters of Laban there in order that he might marry them. This story of him leaving and we're here on the front end of this journey. He's going to Padnaram. And then later, we'll see some things that happen on the journey back. And next week, we'll talk about what happens while he's there. But so much of this process that Jacob is going through, this journey that you see him making, is not only a journey to find a wife and a journey to do different things, a journey to escape the wrath of his brother, but in so many ways, it's a journey of humility. This is a huge part about, of what Jacob is learning during this time. He's learning to be humble. First of all, he's learning by having to flee his brother and his home. Jacob, very clearly, I think the Bible teaches us, though the Lord had chosen to establish him according to his purpose of grace, nonetheless, Jacob is a self-centered man. It can't be easy to be the one on the run when you're that self-centered. It's a humbling process that he's already going through. His mom has warned him that he needs to go and he needs to, to be afraid. He needs to run. And there he goes. Even as he goes, we see in the first five verses of chapter 28, his father blesses him again. He reiterates the blessing that he has given him. One of the beauties of studying the book of Genesis is getting a front row seat to the way that God undoes Jacob's pride. But the very title of the book that we use, Beginnings, Genesis, tells us something that Genesis isn't just speaking about the lives of these patriarchs and the lives of these individuals, Genesis is teaching something to us about the way God works in a larger scale as well. In fact, I think if we stand here on this hill long enough, certainly we can get a picture of the way that God is humbling Jacob and the way that the Lord, in order to meet Jacob appropriately and, and to bring Jacob into his kingdom appropriately, the way that Jacob needs to be humbled, but we're also learning something about the way the world works and the way that all of humanity tends to come to the Lord. We can see something else from this hill. In fact, in Jacob's dream, this word ladder or staircase, it seems to be indicative of a sort of structure that existed all across the, the ancient Near Eastern world. It was called a ziggurat. There's a temple that's made, a temple that has staircases going up it. You might have seen it when you studied Babylon in school or something like that. You might have seen something like that, but it tended to be a temple or a citadel that had a great tower affixed to it there in the center with a staircase going up it. It seems to be what's being indicated here, and it also seems to be what's indicated in the book of Genesis in chapter 11. In fact, if you, if you just look over in this direction with me, if you stand here on the hill with me and you look back and see what God was doing in the past, we might see another ziggurat off in the distance, the great tower of Babel. This ziggurat in Babylon, where what had happened was that the people of the earth wanted, instead of spreading out over the face of the earth like God had told them to, they all wanted to settle in one place. And what did they say? Back in Genesis 11, they say they wanted to build a tower that reached heaven. Their desire was to go to God. And precisely what they said when they built it was, we will make a name for ourselves. 
You see, this tower that we see in this text is pointing us back to another tower. It it was there at Babel that sinful man tried to erect a tower that reached the heavens, and it was there that they asserted their pride and their self-sufficiency and their rejection of God's plan. And you know what the reality is? They built that tower there at Babel, and all of us have lived in Babylon since. All of us have lived in that same place since. Our hearts are prideful. And over and over and over again, we do what our father and mother, Adam and Eve, did so long ago. We do what our ancestors back at the Tower of Babel did so long ago. We choose our plan over God's. We choose what we want to do rather than what God would have us do. We assert our own pride our own self-sufficiency, and our own rejection of God's plan through sin, every chance we get. But I want you to know something. This is something Jacob learns, even though the Lord is about to reveal himself to him here, but Jacob still has a long journey to go, but it's something we can all learn by seeing this text today. Our hearts are prideful, and the reality is we cannot go to God in pride. We can't. The Lord won't tolerate it. The Lord is far too glorious. His plan is far too wise. Our sin is far too dark for us to go to Him in pride. Now, I want you to be warned about something this morning. I want you to be warned about something. We value pride too highly in the world we live in. You can get a lot of things in this world with pride. We don't see pride for the sin it is as much as we should. There's a lot of things you can earn in this world with pride. There are a lot of places you can go with pride. But I want you to know you cannot get to the Lord through pride. They learned this lesson at Babel when the Lord scattered them, when he asserted his will, whether they liked it or not. Jacob is learning this lesson. Jacob is learning the lesson that he's not the center of God's plan, only part of it. But the question today is, will you learn the lesson that you cannot go to the Lord with pride? Now, this is true for the believer as well. So often we think we're saved by grace through faith, and the rest is up to us. But thankfully, I got saved, and God got me off to a nice good start, and I've done a good job with it from there. But nothing could be further from the truth. Flee, flee from pride. Flee from pride, dear saints. Second of all, not only can we cannot go to God with pride, but second of all, we cannot go to God half-heartedly. We can't go to God half-heartedly. If you considered what it is that Jacob is experiencing here in verses 10 through 17, Think about the glory of what he's experiencing. Now, some of y'all might say, if I slept on a rock at night, I might see visions and dreams too. But think about this. Here he is in this place. And just the reiteration of the promises of God would be enough to blow your mind, wouldn't they? He dreamed and there was a ladder set up on earth. The angels were ascending and descending on it, and the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. 
There we go. There's the land, right? Do you remember that promise that God made to Abraham? That he, they would be God's people in God's place under God's rule. He's reminding him of the promise of the land. And your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth will be blessed. Do you see the way that he's promising that they will be God's people? And the way that his promises will spread over the whole earth and all people, not just the children of Abraham, but all people will be blessed? And then he goes on to say, Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. My friends, if none of the other things were true, that's enough. I will be your God. I am committed to you. I will keep you. And then, in addition to these gorgeous promises and these amazing, far-sweeping promises and the glorious promises that he's been given, he also gets something that many of us dream of ourselves. He gets a vision of God. He sees these angels ascending and descending. He sees the way that true religion is rooted in God and the way that this promise to him is going to help all people everywhere enter through the gate to heaven, come to know God. And yet, how does he respond? How does he respond? Surely the Lord is in this place, he says, but... Early in the morning, Jacob, verse 18, took the stone he had put under his head and he set it up for a pillar and he poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. And then Jacob made a vow. Now, first of all, it's interesting that he did not build an altar. That's what Abraham was prone to do when the Lord visited him, to build a place of worship. And yet, all that Jacob does is erect a monument. Now, Nonetheless, he has at least some lip service to God. He recognizes that he's encountered the Lord. But notice what he says next. He makes a vow in verse 20. And he says, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and if he will give me bread to eat, and if he will give me clothing to wear, and if I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. Oh, and by the way, I'll tithe. And so often, this is the sort of religion that we want to practice. If-then faith is pretty shoddy faith. If the Lord will do this, and if the Lord will do that, and if the Lord will do this, and if the Lord will notice that I'm dropping a tenth in the offering plate every Sunday, and if the Lord will accomplish this for me, then the Lord will be my God. I ask you this today. Is your faith in the Lord fully formed? Or are you still trying to practice an if-then faith? If God will give me obedient children, then He will be my God. If God will give me the 401k that I think I deserve, then He will be my God. If God will bless me and prosper me, if God will give me good health. Folks, there are people in the world today who have become millionaires, actual millionaires by preaching if-then faith. If-then faith. If you'll send me $10, God will send you 100 if you would only have faith. 
In other words, they sell fake faith as genuine faith. There are people in the world right now who think, I've been praying the prayer of Jabez for 20 years, and the Lord still hasn't given me all the desires of my heart. It's an if-then faith. But what if the Lord, what if the Lord doesn't spare you suffering in this life? What if the Lord doesn't make you rich? What if the Lord doesn't give you everything you think you deserve? What if the Lord doesn't treat you like his spoiled child? What if all those blessings that you've heard promised based on tithing don't actually come to you in this life? Is God any less worthy of worship? Is God any less glorious in heaven? If, if then faith is not genuine, does that mean God is any less worthy of being trusted? Surely you know the answer, don't you? Surely you know that God is deserving of full worship. God is deserving of our full faith. And this is something that Jacob learns the hard way, but it does not have to be so with you. Today you can know that your faith in God must be complete. It must be total. You must trust Him in every aspect, in every way. We're not holding out, waiting to see if this works out. In fact, we know that it will work out because God has said it will. That's precisely what faith is. You see, so often our problem is that we want all the right things at the wrong time. Because all those things you're longing for, indeed God has promised to you, in fact, I do believe that you will be rewarded for your faithfulness. I, I believe that you will receive all these things and more. Anything you lose for the sake of Christ, I believe you'll receive back. And yet, I cannot promise you that it will happen in this life. But I can promise you there's a day coming when the Lord will make all things right, all things new, and all things whole. I ask you today, is your devotion to the Lord fully formed? Friends, we can't go to God in pride, and we can't go to God half-heartedly. But finally, I want you to know this. God must come to us. Third of all this morning, God must come to us. Someone in their room might be downtrodden right now. <laughs> you might say, preacher, I know I'm not supposed to be prideful, but guess what? I am. And you say, Pastor, I know I'm not supposed to be half-hearted, but guess what? I am. And all you've done today is preach to me how much better I ought to be and how I ought to be better than Jacob. And you, you may feel downtrodden this morning. Oh, preacher, I'm prideful. I'm half-hearted, if even that. What hope is there for me? Don't you see? Don't you see what God is doing in the life of Jacob? Don't you see what God is up to? Don't you see the way that the Lord is being gracious to all of us through his life? As God is reiterating these promises that he made to Abraham in the way that all the nations of the earth will be blessed in Abraham, he is revealing to Jacob what he had already revealed to Abraham and what he had already revealed to Isaac, that his plan is to open up the gate to heaven. 
While Jacob didn't respond fully in faith like I believe he ought to, he nonetheless got something right. He says, this is the house of God. The gate of heaven is here. Jacob sees by faith that God plans to make his dwelling place with man. Of course. Of course we're prideful and half-hearted. Of course we struggle. Of course we're sinners. That's precisely why we're here. That's why I think you ought to listen to people preach the gospel and not people tell you how to do better and how to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. If you're struggling with pride, if you're struggling with semi-devoted passion in your heart for the Lord, then just know this, the Lord needs to come to you. The gate of heaven has been flung wide open. You don't have to build a staircase. You don't have to build a ladder. In fact, if you look around here this very morning, as we're spread out, and only some of us are here, nonetheless, God is building his very house in your presence today. As the word goes forth and the gospel is believed, Jesus Christ himself is in the presence of his people. And in John chapter 1, verse 51, The Lord Jesus tells his disciples, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now what does that sound like to you? What what does that language remind you of? Doesn't it remind you of this story of the ladder where angels are ascending and descending on this ladder and where the Lord is standing over this ladder and Jacob recognizes that God is there and that God is coming to meet man? And yet, what does Jesus say? That he is here among us and that angels are descending and ascending on him. He's showing the way that he himself, God himself, the God of glory, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, has been enfleshed in this world. He came to us because we could not go to Him. Don't you see it? Don't you see the beauty of what God is doing in the world? Don't you see the way that God has made promises to Abraham that can only be fulfilled in Christ? And don't you see the way? Don't you see the way that God is at work even in the life of a deceiver. Even in the life of a deceiver. Even in the life of someone who's prideful. Even in the life of someone whose devotion is half-hearted. Don't you see the way that God is at work to glorify Himself? We're walking on this journey with Jacob, and we're going to see the way that God takes someone who is doing all the wrong things, who doesn't have the pedigree, he's the second born, who who doesn't have all the things that he's supposed to have, and yet God takes him. He, he, He doesn't have the holiness, he doesn't have the godliness that we think a godly leader ought to have, and yet what will God do by the end of this? What will God do? Will he make him more mighty? Will he make him stronger? Will he make him valiant? Will he make him all powerful? Will he give him all the glory that people think a leader ought to have? No, God will give him a limp. God will break his pride. God will render him unable to run. God will make him face all that he must face. And yet on the other end of it, God will establish him in his line forever. 
according to His promises, in order that one might come into the world in the future, in order that He might build a house for God on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles, on the twelve tribes of Israel. And God, though that son be perfect, though he have no pride in his heart whatsoever, though he be the perfect picture of humility, and, and, though, and though his faith be fully formed. In fact, the author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. He is the model for what it means to be faithful, and then he actually lived out perfect faith. And though he was perfect in all respects, he came into the world taking the form of a servant. He was enrobed in flesh. And guess what God did? He took his son and he smote him on the cross. He pulverized his soul, the Bible says. He poured out his wrath on him at the cross. He made his son to know the sufferings that we deserve for our sin in order that we might have a perfect relationship with him through Christ. No longer do we have to wonder how to get to heaven. No longer do we have to wonder how to get into God's presence. No longer do we have to timidly approach the Holy of Holies. The curtain was torn in two, and to this very moment, anyone who has put their trust and faith in Jesus is able to approach the mercy seat without guilt or shame, not because of who we are, but because of what Christ has done. Heaven's gates are flung open wide. Surely, Surely the presence of the Lord has come because of His Son. Indeed, my friends, you are Bethel, the very house of God. And though we desire to know God, and though we desire to make, to heaven, make it to heaven, and though we wish we could build ladders and staircases and temples, by which we reach God. The reality is, my friends, that just like everyone who's gone before us, we need God to come to us. And that is precisely the beauty of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, which the life and story of Jacob is pointing us to, is that we have a God who came to us when we needed it the most. Won't you trust Him? Oh, sinner, won't you trust Him? Won't, won't you believe that the only way you can know God is through Jesus? Won't you trust Him? Oh, Christian, who feels tempted to go to anyone but Jesus for help, won't you trust Him? I hope you would respond to the Lord today. I'm going to pray in a moment. I'm going to invite you to do business with the Lord when I do. But before I do, think about that hill and think about what you're looking at today. You're looking back to all the ways that man over history has tried in his pride to reach God. You're looking at this from this hill at your own life where like Jacob you've sputtered and tried to serve God faithfully and yet it feels like you don't quite hit the mark. But from this hill, you can see another hill, a hill called Calvary, 
where the Lord Jesus himself was placed upon the altar of God, struck with his wrath, in order that you might live. Would you look to him and believe today? Would you trust him today? Would you see what God is doing in the world through the gospel today? If you don't know Jesus, I invite you to put your trust and faith in him today. If you're a believer who's not walking with Jesus as you should, won't you repent of that sin and turn to God and receive his grace afresh this morning? And finally, you may be looking for a church home. And we can't make every promise in the world here, but I can promise you this. Every Sunday when you come here to this church, we will give you Christ and him crucified from the word of God. And what better do we have to offer but that? After this prayer, I want to invite you to do business with the Lord. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his gospel. And God, we thank you for this vantage point that you've given us from the scriptures. And God, I pray that as we tend to want to approach you in our pride, or we tend to think that you ought to just be happy with whatever you get from us, I pray instead, Father, that we would turn to you in faith because of the grace that you've given us in your son, Jesus. And I pray if there's anyone here today, Lord, who doesn't know him, that they would meet him today at his cross. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.